Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 281 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I am heading back on the road in August. We'll be at a number of events. I'm going to tell you about some of them in just a few minutes uh, this fall. But uh, one of my favorite things is, uh, you know, when I meet you guys, listeners, and we talk in real time, you're like, wow, it feels so slow. Because if you're like me, you listen to podcasts at, uh, I don't know, 1.2, 1.5. I met somebody once who listens to audiobooks at 3x normal speed. I can't do that, but... um, Yeah, you know what? Uh, A couple of years ago, I started listening a little bit faster. And these days, I listen at about 1.5. So anyway, here I am in real time, uh, not sped up, recording this and uh, saying thank you so much for taking your time. I hope it's a valuable investment for you. I want to thank all of you who have left ratings and reviews, all of you who have subscribed, all of you who share the podcast on a regular basis. Uh, You continue to help spread the word and we are having some incredible guests as a result. So I want to thank you. One of them is my guest today. Her name is Heather Zempel and she has served at National Community Church alongside Mark Batterson for years as part of the teaching team and in charge of adult discipleship. And Heather's just one of those fascinating people. I mean, uh, we're going to talk about, she's a biological engineer, did not even know there was such a thing, but she is that. And then she worked on Capitol Hill for a little while. And we talk about the Hill as it was then, as it is now, about doing ministry on Capitol Hill. Uh, And we also talk a little bit about what's changing in terms of getting people plugged into community. And Heather says some really interesting things about small groups. She's in charge of small groups and what how their emphasis at NCC is changing. And so this is a lot about the state of the culture. It's a lot about the state of really the church, and I think you're, you're going to enjoy it. So anyway, Heather, so glad to have you on the podcast, and I love me some National Community Church. Mark's going to be one of our future guests as well. Hey, speaking of events this fall, um, I, would, I do love connecting with you guys on the road. An Orange Tour is a one-day event. It's got inspiring sessions, customized breakouts, and it's really designed to align your volunteers and leaders. It's something I've done every year for over 10 years, And uh, we're going to be going all through major cities across the U.S. Uh, Too many to list right here. I am going to be in a few cities. I will be in Irvine, just south of Los Angeles, Phoenix, and Austin. But you can join us in all the cities for John Acuff, Kristen Ivey, Sam Collier, Kara Powell, Sojo, Joseph Sojourner, Paula Danielle, Reggie Joyner, and of course, myself and more. And it's really about reaching the next generation. I'm going to be building into senior leaders, talking about some of my favorite content. So If you head on over to orangetour.org, orangetour.org, use the coupon code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, you get $10 off the regularly low price for the one-day stop in your city. So use the coupon code CAREY at orangetour.org. And then October 1st and 2nd, I'll be in Pittsburgh, back at Pittsburgh for the Future Forward Conference. I'm so excited about that. It's for church leaders and members who are committed to fully engage the next generation in a rapidly changing world. I'm going to be speaking there. So will my wife, Tony, which I'm really excited about. The said Sam Collier will be there, plus Lee Kreitcher and Jason Howard. We'll talk about leadership succession. You're going to hear all about that on my podcast, too. Um, topics include like world-changing women in ministry, digital messaging, uh, building genuine community in a disconnected world, leveraging creativity, irresistible kids and young adults ministries. And they are really crushing it on all those fronts. Plus, the leadership succession has happened there. It's uh, really quite an interesting case study. So if you're looking to transition your church and really embrace the future, bring your key leaders so you can plan your next season. It's the third of three Future Forward conferences. You don't want to miss it. And of course, we're going to take care of you. So go to futureforwardchurches.com slash the conference. futureforwardchurches.com slash the conference to register. Tickets are $79, but the price goes down to $59 if you bring five or more people. So make sure you do that. And we'll be hanging out in Pittsburgh October 1st and 2nd. And uh, let's talk about volunteer training. It is August. Some of you are back in full gear at your church. Others like us are gearing up in the fall for the fall for September. 
How do you get everyone in your church into the same place at the same time? These days, as you know, almost impossible. Well, Ministry Grid makes it simple to train every volunteer and every leader in your church. They've got a library of over now 3,500 videos, 800 courses. You'll find training for every ministry and leadership level from volunteers to ministry directors. Ministry Grid's scope and sequence of training makes it easy to know who needs what training. And the best news For the month of August, that's like right now, you get unlimited access to Ministry Grid for your entire church for just $399 a year. And you're locked in every year at this price. So my church, Connexus, has been using Ministry Grid to train our volunteers. We're loving it. And I'm also working on some content that will be exclusive to Ministry Grid and be delivered to you there. On top of this, uh, if you get a subscription this month, you get a copy of my latest book, Didn't See It Coming, as a bonus on top of this great price. So you want to take advantage of this? Go to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to get unlimited training for $399. Once again, ministrygrid.com forward slash carry. Well, without much further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Heather Zempel. Heather, welcome to the podcast. It's a joy to, I want to say, finally have you on. <laughs> Thanks, Carrie. This is such an honor. Um, man, I, I've been such a fan uh, of yours for a long time. Appreciate your friendship, your investment, and um, just the, all, the, all the resources you bring to the kingdom and to leadership. So thank you. Well, it's absolutely mutual, and we've gotten to know each other through our mutual friend, Mark Batterson, at NCC, mm-hmm. National Community Church, which I think is just such a great idea to have a thriving church literally at the doorstep of Capitol Hill. And we're going to get there. But you had a really circuitous path into ministry, which is interesting. And you have a lot of lay people listening, lots of like non-ministry leaders listening and a ton. But okay, biological engineering, what the heck is that? Yes. All right. So let me let me tell you a little story. Uh, When I was in the seventh grade, um, I my parents took me on a trip to Disney World and in Epcot Center is where I decided I wanted to be a biological engineer. Uh, I didn't know it was called that at the time. All I was uh, excited about was a, a joint research project between NASA, USDA and Epcot Center to develop sustainable agriculture and life support systems for the space program. And you're and in I seventh just, grade? I'm and in the like, seventh grade. Okay. And this is what's interesting you? And that's what I decided <laughs> I was, I mean, to the point where my parents uh, invested about four hours and I'm not sure how much money the next day to get us a private tour of the greenhouses and the the labs of that facility. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't know it was called biological engineering at the time, but I decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. So I so say I went again, to, what was it? I mean, I was just so shocked. I didn't know this story. And this is the fun part about yeah. doing this. So <laughs> the, the display was what? So it was, um, it was a joint research project between NASA, USDA and Epcot Center. Uh, and they were developing sustainable agriculture and life support systems for the space program. So let's say, you know, you set up a base on the moon where scientists are going to live and work for a season. You know, how are they fed? What do you do with their waste? Um, All of those kind of questions. How do you make life work in space? Um, That's what got me excited. Now, the, the, um, uh, the different applications for biological engineering are really broad. I mean, mm-hmm. it's based in terms of what it is. It's taking the basic engineering principles from mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, civil engineering, uh, chemical engineering, and applying them to biological systems. So, for instance, if a mechanical engineer might be designing a crane that's involved in construction activity, uh, a biological engineer is taking those same principles and designing prosthetic limbs for instance. Maybe a chemical engineer is got, uh, they're um, working on reactors that are developing, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, fuels or cleaning products. A biological engineer would would use those same principles to create reactors that are, uh, that are pumping out pharmaceuticals or using wetlands to clean wastewater, for instance. So uh, it's a really broad field and I still love it. Like it's weird. I, you know, I, I've got a master's degree in environmental engineering or biological engineering, which my, my application of it was in the environmental world, then worked on Capitol Hill for several years. And, and now I'm in ministry. Um, and I, I wouldn't trade those experiences for the world because I think all of them have informed and shaped the way uh, I, I do ministry and I do leadership. I think as weird and nerdy as it sounds, principles from biological engineering are impacting how I understand spiritual growth today. 
Okay. Well, we can go there, but I want to go back to seventh <laughs> grade. And yeah. like a lot of people just want to ride Space Mountain one more time. And uh, can we meet Mickey? <laughs> and you're, you're fascinated by this biological engineering um, project that, that NASA and the USDA and EPCOT is working on. Looking back on it now with hindsight, mm-hmm. what was that? What do you think that was? Uh, that's a, wow, that's a really good question. Um, I, so on my strength finders, learner is my top Mm -hmm. strength. Okay. Um, I've also been a a little bit of a cross pollinator. Uh, so around the time I hit middle school, I was very interested in, uh, the science world, but I was, I also have this creative side of me. There's a, like when I went to college, I mean, just get more confusing. When I went to college, I had to decide between engineering and theater, um, because I was also involved in community theater because those are, you know, those are congruous. Um, and so there's this creative side. So I think what it was is it was combining these two worlds of kind of a very left brain, science, but also the right brain creativity of an innovation and invention. What, what is a new, um, what's a new application for these principles that are, that we already know. Uh, so I, I think that's what it was about. So you have a master's in biological engineering. Did you practice in the field? Um, I did. Uh, I did not for very long. It was just like me in law briefly. (laughs) Briefly. it It was a couple of years and, uh, and I loved it. I, um, there was no reason why I left that world. In fact, I have a sabbatical coming up and I'd really like to spend a part of that time scratching that itch a little bit. Again, not necessarily doing work in that field, but I don't know, taking a class or two just because I really, I'm still inspired by, um, by that world. And so, uh, it was really just circumstances that kind of led me, uh, back to Capitol Hill and then eventually into ministry. Yeah. So what brought you, because before you were in ministry, uh, you were a policy consultant, if I understand right, to U.S. Mm-hmm. Senator. Correct. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So while I was studying um, at LSU, getting my master's degree, um, I'd had a conversation with a senator who was on the Environment and Public Works Committee. And he wanted to bring someone in for a year just to do a year-long fellowship to help him with research related to that committee assignment. Uh, there are a lot... I mean, one thing people don't know is DC is largely run by 20-somethings um, yes. because 20-somethings are the only one that have time, the insanity, the energy to work the hours that are required and the passion to, to motivate them to do it. And so, um, but very few of them have actual expertise in the areas that they've been entrusted with policy-wise. So they're usually, um, you know, they're political science majors or, you know, economic majors, something like that. And so, uh, it was a unique opportunity for me to get experience on Capitol Hill and the senator to get someone who had uh, an actual background in the things that they were creating policy about. Um, so I agreed to do that. That's when I started coming to National Community Church. Um, I just as a member, I, and that was a time when we were meeting in Union Station. We were one church in one location. Pastor Mark was still wearing a suit at that time. Um, <laughs> that's and how you far probably back have pictures. That's why you're still on staff and he pays you we, well, right? Yes, so. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I have pictures and I have old sermon tapes. Not that oh, we have wow. anything that can play those, but I have a lot of, uh, a lot of things that, that give me jobs. Cause security. NCC was started in what? 96. <laughs> have I got that right? Uh, yeah, 96. Look, I remember an executive leadership team conversation about whether or not to discontinue tapes, wow. whether to keep the tape ministry or let it go. I mean, sometimes the things that we spend a lot of time as leaders talking about, we've already missed it. Like we need to jump the curve. Um, I'm, I'm going to give Mark a hard time about that. Really? That went to executive <laughs> leadership team. Are you kidding me? When are we going to end the cassette ministry? Keep the okay. tapes, move to CDs. And then I think move when we made the jump to get rid of CDs and go completely to, you know, uh, podcasting and, and webcasting. That was a little bit faster of oh, a that's conversation. Funny. So you started attending NCC yep. just as a young Capitol Hill, yep. 20-something working um, yeah, on Capitol Hill totally. for a senator. 20, 20-something working on Capitol Hill, uh, found NCC, didn't look back, was there for a year, uh, for that you know year of being with the senator's office. And I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the church. I fell in love with the political world, as weird as that sounds yeah. as well. And um, 
but at the end of that, I, I chose to, to move on and I wanted to get experience as an engineer. I wanted to work in that environment. So I moved to Nashville for a couple of years um, and uh, had a great experience there. I loved it. And kind of out of nowhere, I got an invite from the senator's office to come back. And um, and at first I, I dismissed it. Um, but then, I, I don't know, something just kind of... I kept thinking about it and I kept being more excited about it. And the more I was excited about it, the more I could kind of push it away. So I, I decided to leave engineering world, at least for what I thought was going to be a season, to come back to D.C. to work in a more full-time permanent staff capacity. And that's when I was tricked into ministry. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people have calling stories. God called me in a ministry. There's the handwriting on the wall story. You know, Mark has, a, I was walking through a, a cow pasture and God called me. I was just tricked. Yeah. Um, you know, Pastor Mark asked me if I'd be willing to come on staff part-time uh, for nine months to oversee small groups. And uh, that sounded like fun, uh, you know, for a season. I'd had some experience with small groups at various churches before, and uh, and I, I loved it. So I said yes, and three and a half years later, I'm still working full-time on the Hill, um, what's become full-time at the church, and, uh, and really had to make a jump. And at that point, I started looking at— um, where was I? Where was I seeing the most fruit and feeling the most fulfilled? And this doesn't sound very spiritual, but where I was having the most fun, and the answer in every one of those situations was the ministry I was doing in the church world, and I was still getting to rub shoulders with the hill because so many of my small group leaders, ministry leaders, that was their world, and um, you know, I I felt like ultimately my my obedience point, my calling was to make disciples. And so then it was just a question of what environment is the right one? Is it being in an office on Capitol Hill or is it being able to influence 20 people that work in 20 offices on Capitol Hill? So I would love to go back to your time on Capitol Hill, both stints. And I mean, you know it really well now as well because you've got a huge ministry there through NCC. But, you know, Washington has all kinds of stereotypes associated with it. Um it's very divisive is, is, is the uh, thought these days. But I want you to take us back. Uh, how many years ago was that? 15 years ago that you were um, on the Hill? Yeah. I, well, I first came in about, um, let's see, I first came to the Hill in 98. So oh, 98. Okay. So late 90s. So those uh, now, I'm Canadian, so forgive me if I get this wrong, but yeah. Clinton was still the president. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So Clinton I was here was when the Monica Lewinsky hearings oh, were. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Yep. What was the hill like back in the day? <laughs> Give us the skinny well, here. I want to know. So there's what I kind of feel like are two periods. There's the pre-9-11 period and, mm -hmm. and post-9-11 period. And then there's the pre-social media period and yeah. post-social media period. So pre-9-11, post-9-11, you know, it, that was largely just a, a, a infrastructure change. In terms of pre-9-11, anyone could walk right into the Capitol building. I mean, you had to go through security. I remember doing that. Yeah. You just walk in. You gave yourself a tour. If you knew how to do that, you could ride the little underground subway system that senators use to navigate around. Now, most people didn't know they could do that and therefore didn't, but there was a high level of access because the security level is so low. So the idea of this being the people's house, uh, it, it was really a remarkable thing. Um, and then post 9-11, things just changed a good bit in, in terms of access. Uh, and then I think social media has really changed the way um, – at least that the outside world understands DC. Um, gone are the days that everyone is listening to a singular voice at the same time hearing the same thing. You know, gone are right. the days of Walter Cronkite giving us uh, the Cronkite giving us the the news and what's going on. And and uh, and now not only do you have multiple media outlets, but everybody has an opinion and a voice through social media. And uh, I think one of the things that I really want people outside DC to know and to remember is that, first of all, you you everybody's got an angle. Mm -hmm. um, and even I mean, even when it was just a handful of media outlets, like there was still an angle involved. Um, and so getting. Uh, knowing what's really going on and digging into what you're hearing and learning what the truth is was always really important. You know, I'd have family members or somebody that would call me and say, hey, I heard this happen on the Hill today. And I'd be like, no, I was sitting in on the Senate floor when that vote happened. And that's not really quite what it was about. And really um, just because yeah, of the reporting so, even then. 
the reporting, and, and sometimes there are procedural votes, and and then it gets reported as so-and-so voted against such-and-such, when really what they were voting against was prolonging the debate on it or shortening the debate mm. on it. And so it's just little nuances like that that are sometimes – you can't capture them in sound bites. And so – Well, and it's, it's, it's less – I spent time in Ottawa too briefly. You know, I was involved politically as a young adult, teenager, that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's remarkably undramatic for the most part. Right. It's oh, like law. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've got to find a way to make that sexy and to make it sell, unfortunately, now in, in, in terms of media. Um, but another thing I, I like to ask people to remember is that people that are in D.C., it, it, you don't get you don't get rich uh, by working yeah. in politics. Um, maybe a lobbyist does. But hmm. if, if you are an elected official, you're not doing that for the paycheck. Um, and so regardless of whether what what side of the aisle you're on, what your political position is, just remembering these are people that genuinely, I think, want to make a difference. Now, you know, we're people that are full of mixed motives, but mm -hmm. people that are good people that genuinely want to uh, make a difference in the world they live in and remembering that they have spouses and children. So just bringing some humanity back to the whole thing, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on. And, and for me, I think when you have a name and a story and a face to go with a caricature or to replace a caricature, it just makes a huge difference. And so I find it a tremendous blessing to be able to be in this city, uh, to count amongst my friends people that have very different political opinions on different sides of the aisle. And um, I think it strengthens us as people. I think I value the way our process strengthens us as a nation. Um, and, uh, and I think it certainly strengthens the kingdom of God when we've well, got people that are coming around uh, the table that have different opinions, but also recognize that they're a part of a bigger kingdom, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So go back to the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. The perception is, or at least from the sources that I'm reading, that it was less partisan then, that you could actually work across the House or across the Senate and get things done. Was that your experience of it? That, uh, Or was it deeply partisan even back then? Yeah, no, my experience was that. I, I remember, I have a distinct memory of being invited uh, to a meeting with a, a senator. Um, usually staffers went to meetings with staffers and senators went to meetings with senators. But a senator from the opposite side of the aisle invited me and several of my counterparts from both sides to her office for for her to pitch to us an amendment, uh, a bill that she was thinking about and wanting our opinions on it. So it wasn't just across the aisle. It was also this mutual respect, even down through the hierarchical chart, uh, org chart. Um, I, I found we did a lot of bipartisan stuff. We had a lot of bills, a lot of amendments. Um, you know, uh, one time, I mean, this is going to be, uh, just even mentioning this name is going to be controversial for some of your listeners. Um, and, and both names are going to be controversial to different people. But uh, at, the at, at that time, Senator Jeff Sessions and Senator Ted Kennedy had bipartisan legislation. They were, I mean, mm. Ted Kennedy had, had voted against Jeff's federal judgeship. And yet uh, when they were both senators, there was this level of mutual respect and yeah. this idea that we can work together. There are things we agree on. And so um, I'm, I'm not personally on the Hill now. It does feel like some of that has changed. Um, I do think that social media is playing a role in that. I think hmm. that, um, you know, there's a lot of yelling at one another instead of talking with one another. Um, you know, there's what used to be face-to-face -face conversations we're even seeing play out in Twitter, you know, against no, 100%. You know, different, I mean, different that's, people yelling at each other through social media. As we record media. that, that is the top story. There's a Twitter war Absolutely. going on and uh, the House is involved and the president's involved and people aren't really talking to each other. They're talking at each other. At least that's what it feels like as somebody exactly. you know, outside again, Washington. Yeah. And again, not, not being on the Hill, uh, immersed in it like I used to be, it, I'm I'm kind of honestly like I, I have the same view that you do a lot of times because I'm I'm seeing it through the computer screen instead of, you know, personally. And, and that's where it tends to be playing out these days is in that but social media world. One of the things I really appreciate about your church and about Mark and about you. And I mean, we've talked about this over dinners we've had together. I've spent some time with your team and uh, some days in D.C. working with you guys. Um, but you have a real ministry to people on the Hill. 
I mean, these are, these are, as you said, we may see them as caricatures, but they're real people with real needs, real fears, real emotions, um, spiritual crises, you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And, and there is that sense that the Hill, Washington is run by 20 somethings. It is. Yes, I mean, you get, you yes. get behind the scenes and when you're working hundred hour weeks, there's not a lot of 48 year olds who've got that kind of stamina anymore. Um, <laughs> right. So, right. Yeah. Or, or they're wise enough to say, uh, uh-uh, not me. Well, that, and I think that has a lot to do with it too. Yeah. So uh, what are the ministry needs? Cause I'm, I'm, I think the church, this is one of my little pet theories that I work on. The church does for the most part, a really good job with those who are down and out, but we often forget that there are people up and out in the bank towers and law firms, you know, uh, in the finance industry and politics and uh, they are just as broken, sometimes more totally. profoundly so than yep. others. So what are some of the, the issues then and now or that seem to be the serial offenders, the perpetual issues that keep coming up in, in people's lives, real lives? Yeah, that I, yeah, I appreciate you, know, you saying that and raising that and recognizing it. I think there is a real, you know, a, a spiritual poverty that happens um, at kind of the upper levels of leadership. Um, you know, one of the things that we, I mean, obviously we, you know, our, you mentioned, you know, earlier, or we talked earlier uh, about our protege program. And one of the things we want to do is capture leaders early on in their career, because it's a lot easier to teach integrity to a 20 something and start a process of building that in their lives than to try to reverse it once someone is in their forties or fifties. Um, so, you know, I think issues of, you know, I mean, this sounds so silly, but I mean, even just time management, uh, priorities, um, walking in humility, like recognizing that there doesn't have to be a distinction between humility and real hustle, um, how to kind of grow out of a biblical worldview that leadership is a good thing, that leadership was God ordained and God inspired and God granted, uh, to us. And so it's not a bad thing to want leadership, to desire leadership, to be successful as a leader. But then how do you do that within a biblical construct? Those are some of the things that we find ourselves coming back to over and over again. And then, you know, in DC in particular, we have a lot of people that, um, you know, you, you have young 20-somethings that come and they become jaded very quickly. Um, either either they, you know, they came here to change the world and after, uh, you know, two weeks of making coffee and making copies and filing things, uh, they just become discouraged. Um, instead of digging deep to play the long game, uh, they get really frustrated, they get jaded. And then some people get jaded by the whole power thing. You know, they, they just, they come here and it you, power can is addictive and uh, people get drunk on power. So it's, those are some of the things that we're constantly um, I- I- I trying to come back to and, and trying to remind people we're part of a larger kingdom uh, to celebrate the idea that we are bridge builders and peacemakers, um, learning to listen, to understand, to lean in, um, and that we can make a difference in those places. I remember one of the conversations we had when I was in DC with you guys, and I forget who said it. It might've been you, it might've been Mark, might've been someone else, but um, the observation was made for your protege program, which is basically your internship program for Mm -hmm. young adults on Capitol Hill, is um, that they usually do not need competency training. These are the best and the brightest. They've gone to the best schools. They made it all the way to Washington on their own. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, you know, you should really study foreign policy a little deeper. (laughs) That's not the issue. It's almost all character. It's some of the personal skills, time management. And I've taught on that uh, with you guys. But, you know, time management, high impact leader stuff in my world, and then a lot of character development. Is that accurate absolutely. still? That is absolutely still accurate. Um, yeah, it's it's character, it's perseverance, it's patience. One of the things that we we say a lot in Protégé is that your your character formation is way more important than your calling. And what you've got to focus on in your 20s is developing the character that you're going to need to sustain the calling that God's placed on your life. Oh, um, the question with these 20-somethings is not, do they have potential? Do they have a calling? Can they make a difference? It's, um, will they be uh, people of integrity and will they be people that um, will they be leaders that are worth following? And so that's what we, we spend a lot of time investing in. 
And on that, I mean, the, the popular perception of Washington for decades is that it's a moral cesspool. If I can use that phrase, is that fair? Is that fair? Is that harsh? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, that whoever is sleeping with whoever, uh, drinking drugs, you name it, it's going on there behind the scenes. What's your experience actually living on the Hill? Is that yeah. stereotype justified, unjustified? Uh, how do you, and how do you work with people who are in the kind of context that you describe? Yeah, totally. Um, well, you know, a lot of people get their, um, I think their views of DC right now, not only from social media, but also from programming like the West Wing yeah. or I, what's the one that's popular right now? I've just, I, I don't, I've never watched it. Well, Veep any, just but, finished its run, but I don't yeah. watch TV anymore. I really have to start. Yeah, like, for the last few I, years, I've just dropped off. There's there's another one that's wildly popular and, and everybody's going to dang me for not being able well, to remember. It'll be in the but, comments, I promise you. Yeah. <laughs> somebody, somebody will come to our rescue. Um, but, you know, there there's certainly that that portrayal. I found, uh, I, I love the people that come to D.C., particularly the young people. They're yeah. hopeful. They're inspired. They're inspiring. Um, you know, certainly there are things that we're, you know, we wrestle with. I don't, I don't know that some of the, the issues like sexuality and, um, you know, alcohol abuse and, and things like that are any worse here than they are anywhere else. Yeah. I think pressures are stronger here. And so, mm. um, or maybe different, I, maybe I should say different. The pressures are different. And so sometimes, you know, people turn to those unhealthy habits, uh, is a way to self-medicate. Um, but, uh, but I have found one of the things I always want to tell people is, look, you've, there are people in D.C. that love Jesus, that love the church, that want to make a difference. It's not this terrible place that is sometimes portrayed in the media or portrayed in the entertainment world. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. What are you learning in working with young leaders? I mean, first of all, we have a lot of young leaders listening to this podcast and a lot of people working with young leaders in the marketplace and in the church. What are some of the top things that you're focusing on right now and what are the trends you're seeing in uh, developing 20-something leaders? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I love young leaders and I, I mean, maybe that's obvious from some of the things that I do here at NCC. Um, I think you know, I'm constantly telling churches, you know, Sometimes us older leaders love to, we love to talk to one another about young leaders mm -hmm. and the young leaders are in the room now. Like we need to let them talk about themselves. Um, <laughs> I think there's been a lot of us just explain, you know, we're like old people explaining, um, <laughs> you know, this younger generation. And uh, like, I, I love the fact, I loved reading Dylan Smith's blog post uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. My um, 20 year old staff member that, who posted on my blog. Yeah. That was great. And one of the things I've always valued about you, Carrie, is that you platform young leaders and you give voice to young leaders and you give you give young leaders the decision. You invite them to the table. And that's what I keep uh, you know, telling us old leaders that we've got to there let's let them lead. We can learn a lot. Um, and I think when you when you believe in someone and you give away opportunity, uh, you're going to build the trust. So I think sometimes we're afraid if we let a young leader lead and they're going to go rogue or go crazy and then that's going to reflect badly on us. Um, and, and sometimes that's true. I think we have to take that risk because somebody took that risk on us. I think that if we do those things, it builds trust and then they're willing to listen. They know that they're going to fail and they know when they fail. And I think if we've done that hard work of uh, – taking the risk, making the sacrifice to give them the opportunity to lead. The trust is going to be built for us to then give feedback and speak into that. And so all that to say, I don't even remember now exactly what question no, you asked. No, I love this. That is a great, that is a great, I'm going to call it a small R rant. I love it. <laughs> it's so good because you're right. And, and the funny thing is, you know, you're this 20 something, barely 20 in Washington, D.C., writing policy for U.S. Senator. And a guy named Mark Batterson, who's still wearing suits, because that's what you're <laughs> supposed to do back in the day, is a 20-something launching a church on Capitol Hill. Like, you know, the stuff that we did when we were younger is insane, but there is kind of a power grip, I think, mm -hmm. that, that, that Gen Xers yep. and baby boomers have on, hung on to that we need to let totally. go. And we totally. need to empower, enable, release the next generation. And we learned so much of what we learned by trial and error. You know, absolutely. That's where all my and content I, comes from. Here's the 7,000 <laughs> ways I've screwed up. Now exactly. you don't have to. Totally. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I, you know, I think that, um, 
Gen Xers were the squeeze generation. You know, yeah. we're the we're like in the yeah. middle. And so I think that might be part of the reason we have such a hard time. Um, <laughs> because, you know, first of all, we we, you know, we're we're coming behind, you know, the baby boomers that were just a, such a huge generation. And and I think a lot of Gen Xers kind of have this feeling that we didn't get our chance um, mm. because the baby boomers hung in for so long and now the millennials are coming up behind us. And, um, you know, I, so I, I get that. Um, but I think another thing we have to keep in mind is uh, a lot of times when we complain about the millennial generation, which one of the difficulties we have right now, I think, in organizational leadership is we're dealing with two generations behind us now. There's the millennial yeah. generation and Gen Z. Yep. We kind of lump them all together as the young people. But um, I think that uh, what we have to remember with generations coming behind us, the the millennials have been the most probed, picked on generation ever. I mean, yeah. w- people have loved to write about, talk about, complain about the millennial generation. Um, and I think we have to remember as leaders to make a distinction between what is a unique generational issue and what is just a 20 something issue, a life stage issue, a life stage issue. Exactly. Because I think sometimes we conflate those two things. Time magazine actually did an article. Um, and I love, I, I I don't, I can maybe send it the, a link to you for the show link, but um, I, I open, I, sometimes when I'm talking with other leaders about the millennial generation, I will read a quote from a Time Magazine article, and every it's about the the new generation coming up. Everybody's nodding their heads and groaning and agreeing. And then you find out the article was actually written in like 1985. <laughs> so everybody thinks that the article is talking about the terrible millennial generation, when in actuality it was talking about, you know, the, the Gen X. And so just remembering that some things are life stage issues and some things are unique generational issues, but trying to find a way to distinguish that is important. I, I have not been able to successfully find this. And again, maybe a listener can come to my rescue. But I know a long time ago, I heard this quote, and I'm pretty sure it would be accurate. And it was a quote um, about what's wrong with young people today. They wear their hair funny, they're lazy, they don't try much. And it was like from Emperor Clodius yeah. in the Roman yes. Empire. I have heard you that know. too. Have you heard yes. that? I cannot Absolutely. find it. But Absolutely. No. It is it is sort of a perennial issue that one day the millennials totally. will be wringing their hands over totally. their children. Absolutely. And that's life. And you know, and I, I say this just for the record, in case you're tuning in for the first time, my entire team, I have no baby boomers on my team. Um, I'm the only Gen Xer <laughs> and everybody else is millennial or Gen Z. So I love it. They're doing a great job. They're fantastic. And um, I'm I, I love to talk about it because I like to pop the stereotypes. I think absolutely. You know, you can find lazy baby boomers and lazy Gen Xers, and you can find lazy millennials. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with and that. And highly motivated people. So um, you give them real responsibility. Tell us what the protege program involves. So these are these people yep. working full time at Capitol Hill, or they've taken a break to join your team. Um, mostly they take a break from whatever they're doing to join our team and they gotcha. come from Capitol Hill. Some people now are coming from, uh, you know, other places. Uh, we have people that are, we've had full-time youth pastors quit what they're doing and come work with us for a year. We have, you have a national profile college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, people come for a, from a number of different places for a number of different reasons, but the protege program is a year long immersion experience at NCC. You're part of our full-time staff. Uh, we don't pay you. We give you a small stipend um, to, to live somewhere. Um, it doesn't cover everything, but but hopefully it helps. And uh, and we let you learn kind of in the trenches. Um, there, is a, there is a cohort model kind of learning uh, education piece to it, but most of it is just shoulder-to-shoulder mentoring within a department. And, and we give protégés big projects. I mean, at the end of the year, we can look back and we can, we can put on a list things that would not have happened at NCC without our protégés. Right. Curriculum that wouldn't have gotten written, programs that wouldn't have been developed, ideas that wouldn't have come to fruition. And so um, we just, we really want to deploy leaders for the local, not just the local church. I mean, some of our protégés have gone on. They've actually learned they're not called to the local church. They're mm. actually called to be entrepreneurs. They're called to go into politics. They're called to go around the world uh, as missionaries. But um, but we want to deploy young leaders that have character to sustain the calling and that will have the the character to to do whatever it is that they're um, launched into. 
my son was an intern at Conexus, and I still remember one day on the ride home, he said, uh, this is like the first responsibility I've ever had. Like if I don't do my job, <laughs> bad things happen. And I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. right. Like church won't Absolutely. happen. And that that is a wonderful and terrifying thing to get as a young adult. But I think too often we just have them sit there, observe and do nothing when they're extremely capable. And you study Absolutely. history, you know, by the age of 21, people have made inventions, discoveries, like people, people are smart, smarter than we give them credit for. Absolutely. No, totally. Okay. We want to, we, and we wouldn't be the church that we are without our protégés. I mean, we, mm. they make us who we are. So uh, we, we love having people come be a part of that program. So let's talk about ministry on the Hill. Okay. In Washington, <laughs> D.C., uh, one of the things I've learned about the I city. I laugh every time you say the hill. I just don't know what's going to hit me. And so. <laughs> just is that good? Is it bad? It. Is it? It's great. It's okay. great. I love the hill. I love the hill. <laughs> <laughs> but I know one of the things that happens that surprised me is you have a turnover every time the government yes. turns over. So in other words, yep. thousands of people get fired. They leave Washington <laughs> and then a whole new crew of people come in. So, you know, yeah. you have people who are trying to do ministry or business and uh, military towns and transient towns totally. and DC would be chief among them. Uh, what, how do you do community with people who are working hundred hour weeks, traveling all over yes. the place and everybody gets fired every three years? Like how do you, yeah. how do you get them into groups? Absolutely. Um, well, and, and add to that chaos, also the academic calendar. So there are oh, so right. many universities in DC that we have people, I mean, some of our longest tenured NCCers are our undergraduates because we have them <laughs> for four have years. Four years. <laughs> We've got a full four years with them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, but, you know, our grad students are here for two to three. Uh, if you're on the Hill, it might be two years. You know, I, I, I knew a statistic at one point that six months was about the average lifespan for a Hill staffer in a specific role. I mean, that somebody wow. might stay on the Hill for, you know, three or four years, but six months in one role. And um, so that's just a lot of moving around. Um, mm. Now, on one hand, we get asked a lot, uh, you know, how have you done such a great job forming community in such a transient city? And on one hand, I, I think we actually have an unfair advantage because people are most likely to get involved in something like a small group or connect to a Bible study or connect to a group when they're in the midst of a life change. True. So when you're first moving into a city, that's probably when you're most uh available. You've got the most, um, not that you have the most, um, you know, discretionary time, but you can prioritize your time differently. So I think that, you know, we actually have a little bit of an unfair advantage because we're catching people at life transitions. All your patterns are broken. They, exactly. they say that, right? Exactly. It's like, well, I so, just moved. It's a new apartment, new job. I don't have totally, a routine. So totally. to be able to put church into my routine, group into my routine, serving into my routine is easier now than if you've been in the same rut for 10 years. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'd love to be able to say it's something awesome that we're doing. I think a lot of it is just catching people in transition seasons. I also think, and this is a new thing, Carrie, and I, I'm, I'm about to talk about something that I have very little data to support or experience mm -hmm. with, but, but one of the things I'm hearing from the younger leaders is that it's less community that they're seeking, and at least kids in the church, it is more discipleship. Oh, They're wow. not wanting, and, and that that's exciting to me because we've always led with the, you need connection is kind of the de debate to get people connected either to serving or to small groups or Bible studies or whatever. Um, but they're saying, how do I operate within a biblical worldview? I've come to the city and I've been given this job that is overwhelming and a lot rests on it. And I don't know what I'm doing. So how, you know, how does my faith connect with my nine to five? Or, or in this world by 24 seven. Um, and so, you know, I think we're going to start leaning in a little bit more to hitting some harder topics and asking people to, uh, to serve at a higher capacity and be accountable to a higher capacity. Um, one of our best environments, and I'll, I'll share this because it might be exportable to other, particularly urban mm. environments, city environments. We started something called Freshmen of the City a few years ago. And it was this realization that, um, now this is for people that are full-time in their jobs. They're on, many of them are on Capitol Hill, the administration, but they're new to the city. We realized that colleges, universities do a tremendous job in the first few months to orient freshmen to the campus. They want to generate cultural buy-in. They want to they set up students to succeed on the campus, to be able to play the long game for four years. But then they 
these students are leaving college and moving to cities and they have the same passion, the same excitement, but you've stripped away, you know, the dorm environment. You've stripped away the, the camp, the, the college or the, you know, the department of the campus and, um, and kids are a little lost. They don't have anybody to orient them to their new life. And so freshman of the city is basically freshman orientation for kids that are new to Washington, D.C. And it's everything from, from dealing with like, how do you, I don't know that they do this as much anymore now, but in the early days, like how do you navigate the Metro? What do you do when you go to the grocery store and you come back with a, a whole cart of groceries, but you got to somehow get all that on the Metro and back to your apartment, <laughs> you know, um, to the more, um, you know, maybe the more transformational stuff of uh, what is a biblical worldview? Uh, what does it look like to grow as a person of character? How do you serve a boss that you don't like or maybe you disagree with? Um, and so it's a we give each each freshman that comes in, they're put into a small group and there's a mentor uh, that walks with them for six months. And it's usually a couple that's been, sometimes they're married couples, sometimes it's just singles that are uh, working together as a, as a mentor team. And, um, and they walk with these freshmen for about, you know, three to four months and sometimes longer. And, um, and it's just, it's a way to orient them to the city. That's one of the most successful environments we have right now. And we're finding more and more that we need to hit hard topics there, that it's not just about the community aspect. It's about how do I do this in my day-to-day job? I wonder if that is the beginning of sort of the edge of a cultural shift. There've been a couple times on this podcast and sometimes it get, you know, we get pretty angry emails when people question community or angry comments <laughs> or that kind of thing. But do you, is it that like people are communityed out or they've, they've got that in other areas of their life? Because the data would show that people have never felt more alone. So you would think that they would want community, but you're saying the felt need seems to be more discipleship. Like, tell us what we really believe. I'm just, I'm trying to figure that out. Maybe that's a harbinger of post-Christianity that I don't know what we believe. I I don't really, I'm not very biblically literate. You need to help me. But I would also (laughs) see community as a super high value as well. I don't know. I'm trying to, can you pick that apart a little bit? Because I think there is something there that maybe we don't, we're all wrestling with, but nobody really understands. Right. And I, you know, I've, I've, um, I've been wrestling with it for a few days in particular because of a conversation I had with some younger leaders about yeah. community and discipleship. And, um, part of it, I wonder if some of it is in the church in particular that we have overpromised and underdelivered in that mm. area. You mm. know, so often we've said, get into a small group, you'll find your best friends. And how often have we been in small groups that if we walk in on the first night and we think I've got to spend the rest of my life with these people, <laughs> I mean, we're out, you know, right. um, we've and tried is, to, to be fair. That is biblical community. I mean, Wait, it is, is not true. all your best that friends true. read first Corinthians. It's like, Oh, all these crazy people. Hello. Yeah. But what we haven't done is taught that. So we've said, You're go right. to small group, you'll find your best friends. And we think it's just to add water and stir. And these are the mm. people I'm going to enjoy hanging out with. And we haven't taught the, you know, the benefit of, of leaning into the other and, 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 you know, intergenerational, I think even. So I think there's some overpromise under deliver. I wonder if community yeah. is one of those elusive things that when you try to aim for that, you don't often get it. But if you mm-hmm. aim for something different, community comes uh, is part of the package. So, for instance, um, community, the kinds of communities that I tended to develop in when I was really involved in small group world, which I, I still am, but it, they were all face-to-face. And I'm wondering now if building community around something that's shoulder-to-shoulder is actually more powerful and sustaining and transformational in the long run. So you can, you can, if you're all, if you're shouldered, I mean, it's the reason that we see such tight community develop on missions teams, for instance. Yeah. Shoulder they, to shoulder, you mean like a serving context kind yes, of thing or a missional context? Context or being pointed in the same direction with something. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, missional um purpose-oriented, service-oriented, you'll get community on the other side of that. So I wonder if some of it is a younger generation coming up behind us. They don't just want to just sit around and talk. They want to go make a difference. And so the point of their engagement is not you need friends and community, but you have a purpose and a mission and you need others to do that alongside. So I, I think that might be another piece. That's good. And I mean, I know for us in our local context here at Connexus, we have some really good groups. We have some groups that, you know, have their challenges. Um, But what has really surprised me in the last four or five years is how much community has formed in the context of our volunteers. That sometimes 
you know, let's say you're serving in preschool when a preschool teacher mm-hmm. ends up in the hospital or they're not, they're small group leaders, but you know what I mean? When they end up in, in the hospital or their child is sick or something, it's often without a whole lot of prompting that that preschool group that gathers oh. together will just rally behind that person. And, but that shoulder's shoulder, that's not even an official totally. group. And, and that's interesting. And then what are the subjects that you're diving into more deeply now when you talk about the, the desire for discipleship? Like what, what are you sensing the menu mm-hmm. needs to be on that? Yeah. I mean, I think one piece of it, there's, there's a desire for biblical literacy uh, and not just, I mean, we started something a few years ago called the story, which takes people through the chronological story of the Bible in like three nights. Um, so it, you, you take the Kings and put them into context, or I'm sorry, the, the minor, the major minor prophets, put them in context of the Kings, the poetry and wisdom literature in in context of the Kings, and then the writings, uh, the epistles in context of the book of Acts. And there's been a a, a hunger for that, just knowing how all the pieces fit together. So Mm -hmm. for church kids, they've heard the stories, but it hasn't been put together. And then for non-church kids, it's, they're finally getting like what this is all about. Um, but not only biblical literacy, but even like, how do you read the Bible? Like, how do we approach this book? How does this book written thousands of years ago connect to my life today? How do we, um, things like historical context, cultural context, spiritual context of ancient Judaism versus first century Judaism of Jesus. I mean, all of those things are, are people seem to be eating up. And then along with that, um, spiritual disciplines, some of them that are very uh, opposite of pace of life in DC. So things like listening prayer, contemplative practices, Sabbath, uh, silent retreats have become now, and some of these things we're not we're not they're not even part of our program yet. We're just paying attention to where there's energy and where things tend to be bubbling up. Um, silent retreats have become very popular, it seems. Well, and they're popular in the mainstream world too. I mean, there are secular silent retreats, and <laughs> I mean, you see yep. these things, and and I think it is uh, a counterpoint to the overwhelm we're all feeling and our phone buzzing a thousand times a day in our pocket. So totally, that, totally. I'm glad you're paying attention attention to that because for those of you who who know or don't know NCC I mean you guys are classically you would say you're an attractional church that's sort of yeah. generally the model mm-hmm. a little bit charismatic but um you know and you also one thing that really impressed me I wrote I didn't attribute it to your church but it, it certainly has been a factor in in my uh writing and thinking about where church is going but you guys have always done what I just call, and maybe you have a better name for it, ministry moments. Like I was at your broadcast location and Joel Schmidgall, the campus pastor got up mm-hmm. and he just like prayed for people like yeah. old time, old school, like, <laughs> Hey, maybe some of you you are having a hard time. I'm just going to pray yeah. for you right now. And totally. it was really powerful. It was a really powerful moment. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that's addressing the needs of young adults? Yeah, I think sometimes one well one of the things that we know we have to create is a place of transcendence, mm. uh, a place that, that feels different from the day to day. We want to create a, a place where people are they know they're connecting with the holy, um, and by that I don't necessarily mean like something that's rigid, but something that's other, that's different, that's a little bit distant, but at the same time also the eminent. So you know, I think in. I, I don't think Pastor Mark would talk about it this way, but I think about it in terms of transcendence and eminence, and we need both. And we need to usher people into both of those places. And so uh, we think that breaking the routines is important um, to to making those things happen. So whether it's having those kind of old school ministry moments, um, or sometimes it's the opposite. It's, it's, you know, uh, bringing something into an experience that people might not consider, you know, initially to be a a spiritual thing or a church thing, but we're, we know that God's truth is everywhere. So redeeming uh, everything. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, do you have an example of that before we move on? Yeah. And what, this is the re, this is a kind of an old school example, actually, like this was, you know, pretty popular in, in churches kind of in the eighties, but we just did it a couple weekends ago at our new Capitol Hill campus. And, you know, we had a guy that painted through the entire, um, through the entire service. And for some people that's like, a, oh yeah, churches were doing that 20 years ago. And for other people that's like, wow, there's, there's somebody painting in the service. What is that about? And, um, but using that as a, another way to express worship is another way to connect with the message. Um, and so, uh, you know, we we encourage people to practice uh, to observe Lent, to practice Lent, which is not something that is 
you know, necessarily normal in our particular tradition, but it's another way to break routine. Um, we'll regularly call people to, you know, seasons of prayer and fasting. Uh, and those are, those things are resonating. Oh yeah. 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 No, I see that. That that's good. You were going to say something else. So thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now you also are part of the teaching team at yeah. uh, NCC. Yep. Uh, and you've been doing that for over a decade. What are mm-hmm. some, anything you want to share from sort of your teaching area about what seems to be connecting, what's not connecting anymore, how you're changing and growing as a communicator? She, uh, Heather's a powerful communicator, by the way. Really, oh, thank you. Really great. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I think that... Um, I don't know if it's just the, the the young adults I'm running with or if this is a, a larger trend. It's something I'm trying to pay attention to. You know, our, our preaching used to be uh, very felt need based, very mm-hmm. story driven. And I, I think there are two ways of storytelling. I think there's kind of the, the cute anecdote that paints a nice little picture of the point we're trying to make. And then there's storytelling that actually draws people in and kind of without them noticing what we're doing, we're making a point, moving them in a direction. That kind of storytelling is resonating. I think the cute anecdote that kind of paints a picture that you kind of hang as an ornament on the, the point of the tree you're trying to make mm-hmm. isn't as effective anymore. Um, but I'm seeing more and more a hunger to just open up the text and dive in, um, you know, without a lot of kind of upfront dog and pony show or giving you a reason why this is important. I mean, it's like, let's open up the scriptures and dive in. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about the historical context, the cultural context, what's going on that makes this make sense. And, and I, I'm sure that that differs from, from, location to location and and community to community, but those are some of the things that we're experimenting with a little bit more here. The other thing I'm seeing is um, having a greater level or comfort level with being in a place of of, of the gray space, Um, not being able to answer every question, not, not tying it up in a bow in the end, to live with a little bit of tension and conflict and discomfort. And, and I'll, I'll give a for instance, and I actually, and again, there's, there's different, you know, you're going to find people on both sides of this, but a few, uh, a couple of years ago, we did a sermon series, God in the Hands of Angry People. That is one of our most popular sermon series we've done. The idea that what happens when, you know, the idea of God or religion or spirituality gets in the hands of really angry people and they abuse it. And what I was assigned with was talking about the God of the Old Testament and why that God has caused problems for people. And so uh, I talked about uh, the the genocide that we see in um, in Joshua. And how do you handle that? How do you how do you reconcile that with a loving God. And what I did in the message, um, and I'm going to get in trouble with your podcast listeners or some of them, I'm sure. But what I did was I said, hey, here's four or five different ways of understanding this. Uh, This is four or five different ways that we can interpret this, that we can understand it, that we can make sense of it. But at the end of the message, I didn't give an answer. I didn't reveal my cards where I personally leaned, uh, and I didn't I didn't give an answer to what you think what you should think. I just said here are tools that we can employ to be good students of Scripture and to be good theologians. And um, I think that's what most people are craving for: is not necessarily teach me what to think, but teach me how to think. That's a really long answer to your question. Oh, um, I love that. And and uh, and walk alongside me while I do it. Um, now I will say we did have at least one person leave the church because they they said uh, I I don't want a, a guide from the side. I want a sage from the stage. I want somebody to tell me what to believe. But I think in our context that's more the exception than the rule. So I think the more we can lean in to teaching people how to think and walking alongside them as they do that instead of teaching them what to think is is a difference that I'm seeing. That is, <laughs> that's incredible. And you know, to me, what what I hear you doing and what I hear you saying in our conversation, it sounds like NCC is doing a really good job of figuring out in real time how to reach a post-Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I know in Canada that would that would resonate. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, there are things you're just clear on, but you you can read five conservative commentaries on any of those mm-hmm. passages you would preach on oh, and get totally. five different angles. It's not Absolutely. like there is one thing. And and nuance 
is actually appealing to, yeah, to unchurched people and to Christians who are like, oh, well, if the Bible, you know, I think it was Calvin who said, if the Bible's clear, be clear. If it's not, you know, you don't need to be. Yeah, absolutely. Be as clear as the scripture is. And at times it's crystal clear. And sometimes it's like, well, we don't 100% know what to do with that. <laughs> right? Exactly. And, exactly. And, and, and it's okay to say that. Absolutely. I think it's actually necessary to say that as mm. communicators in today's environment. I think it it builds a level of trust with people that you're leading, and it also gives them confidence that I can study this too. I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to come to a, a, a firm conclusion the first time I read it, that it's a, it's an invitation to a journey. Uh, I think it's also one of the things that I, I, I love about NCC is we have a teaching team. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm probably going to lean in a little bit more to that kind of, you know, nerd level academic, here's the culture, here's the history, here's what different theologians say, let's wrestle with this. And then, you know, Mark Batterson comes in such an amazing storyteller. I mean, and you're going to learn a lot about history, like contemporary history, and you're going to learn uh, a, a lot about culture and a lot of different things listening to Mark preach. Uh, and then you've got Joel that's like, a, hey, guys, let's go out and do this. Like if we're not doing mm. it, it doesn't make a difference, you know. And so I think there's value in having different voices. I I think it's Jeff Henderson that talks uh, about different styles of of communicators, and there's yeah. the the vision caster, and um, there's the storyteller. And I think when you have a teaching team, you're able to capture. As a communicator, I don't have to be all things to all people. I I just Correct. do my thing, and then the team fills it out and rounds it out. And so I I think that's a strength of what we're doing at NCC because we are drawing a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. We're a bit of a melting pot, and so I think the teaching team is a strength. Mm. Heather, anything else you want to share with us? This has been so rich. Oh man, well I just I think um, if you're a leader. Uh, that is leading young adults, man, encourage them, give them a voice, give them a platform, um, you know, uh, read, read Dylan's blog on, on a uh, blog post on Carrie's blog. And if you are a young leader, I just encourage you, man, hang in there, play the long game, uh, have patience, perseverance, don't trade what you want 20 years from now for what you want right in the moment. Um, you're going to, you're going to do good. You're going to make it. So, that is yeah. a good word. Don't trade what you want 20 years from now from what you want right in the moment for what you want in the moment. That's, that's well said. Heather, it's been a joy. You've also written a couple of books. Tell us about them. I have. Well, I've written two, um, two books that are about small groups and community, um, that probably need to be rewritten now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's that's life, right? You know, uh, one is titled community is messy. And, uh, that's a little bit of our story and journey at NCC. It's primarily for small group pastors, uh, as they're thinking about how to create uh, environments of community at their church. And then uh, the most recent one is Big Change Small Groups from our friend at, friends at Orange. Uh, it's taking some of their lead small principles and growing them up to adult small group settings. So those are both group related. And then um, I've got a book called Amazed and Confused. It's on the book of Habakkuk. Carrie, I tend to write for the smallest audiences imaginable, you know, like small group pastors and people that read the book of Habakkuk. Um, okay. But- <laughs> so, so for all three of you, no, I'm kidding. There's a lot of small group pastors, so, but that's yes, awesome. Exactly. But Amazing Confused is kind of, what do you do when God's actions don't seem to match his character? What do you do when God doesn't act the way you think he could or should? Um, and so that that's what I've written. Well, we will link to all of that in the show notes. Heather, I want to thank you so much for being with us. I'm looking forward to our next gathering. I think I'm in DC with you guys again in October. I can't wait for that. It's going to be the best. So thank you. So exciting. Well, thank you so much for having me on the program. This has been a huge, uh, your your podcast is a huge blessing to me as a leader. And so uh, it's an honor to be here. Well, you blessed a lot of people today. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, Gary. Man, I love the eclectic uh, and rather unpredictable nature of that conversation. And if you want more, we've got show notes and transcripts, also some fun ways to share the podcast to you. If you follow me on social, on Instagram in particular, but also Twitter and Facebook, you'll see some really cool new graphics we're putting together and um, feel free to copy those and share them on your platform as well as you help us get the word out. So you can find everything in the show notes at kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode, what are we at? 281, 281, or go to com and just search Heather Zempel's name in the search engine. That'll do it too. So I'm really pumped about our lineup. It just keeps getting better and better. And I'm pinching myself because we've got N.T. Wright, John Townsend, J.D. Greer, 
just confirmed to be on the uh, podcast. David Platt is talking about his new book, Max Lucado. Uh, Jeff Henderson, Annie F. Downs, we're going to bring back to the podcast, I think. Louis Giglio, Mark Batterson, Gordon McDonald. Yeah, it's going to be a great lineup coming up. If you subscribe, you get that all for free. And next week, uh, I am actually going to be talking to the former CEO of SeaWorld and Saab and Hershend Entertainment. His name is Joel Manby. I've known Joel for years. And we talk about the ups and downs and the struggle of leading through challenges. It's powerful. Listen in. I think because my dad was blue collar and we grew up on the lower side of the tracks, <laughs> I was always good at being able to talk to the chairman, but also the frontline worker. And that differentiated me from a lot of different people. What I found I was really bad at was um, setting boundaries. And, and, and I listened too much to too many different people and I cared too much about what the external world thought. And in the end of the day, you know, we'll, we'll get to this, and this is a, a big point to make. I believe it cost me my, my marriage mm-hmm. because I didn't, I listened to too many different voices. I worked too long. I, I didn't fulfill the, that commitment in my marriage. And I should have listened always to my internal voice and not the voice of anybody else. So anyway, uh, that is next Tuesday on the podcast. Make sure you register for Orange Tour this fall. Go to orangetour.org. Use the coupon code CARRY and futureforwardchurches.com forward slash the conference. And we can hang out in Pittsburgh, October 1st and 2nd. And remember, Lifeway this month, incredible gift. You get my book. You get uh, unlimited access for $399. You get that rate forever. Uh, ministrygrid.com forward slash carry to take advantage of that. And I really do appreciate you guys listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. I really do hope that this has been a good investment in your time and I hope it's helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change and personal growth to help you lead like never before.